Well, good morning. As Graham said, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm just grateful that you can all join us this morning. And if you're joining us from online, thank you too for taking the time to be with us. You know, I am one of the pastors here named Dave, but I'm not one of the only pastors here that's been named Dave. And our, you know, the original pastor Dave is sitting over here, and it's his birthday today. Yeah. So uh, I expect in the foyer after the service that we give him his birthday bumps, okay? There we go. Just kidding. Um, yeah, we are in our sermon series in the book of Ephesians, so I want to encourage you, if you have your Bible, turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. You know, before coming to Calvary, I had been considering and praying about a job change for quite a number of years. Andrew and I both believed that God uh, had something new in store for me, and when it comes to pastoral work, most of the time, uh, a change like that requires a move to another city or even another province. And one of my sons, he has a much harder time with change than most. He loves his school and his friends and his friends at church. He loves the security that he had of being in the same home for the last 10 years. And we try to talk to him, to prepare him for a potential change that might be coming up. But whenever the subject came up, he didn't want to hear it. This was bad news. But then I got my role of being your pastor here at Calvary. And not only did that mean that I had found the job change that I believed that God was calling me to, but it also meant that we didn't have to move. And so when we told our children about this, I started to tell them about the new job at the new church. And yes, this would be hard because it meant leaving the old church, but because Calvary is in Coquitlam, it means we don't have to move that the kids could stay in their school and that we could stay connected with our friends who live in the area. That one little word, but, it made all the difference. It took a situation full of fear and unknowns and it brought them peace and comfort. They were pleased with this news. Well, pleased for the most part. My son who struggles with changes, he said to me afterwards, Dad, the next time you have to tell me something like this, Start with the good news first. You know, in the passage we're looking at this morning, the Apostle Paul also shares some bad and some good news. He also shares the bad news first. And boy, is it ever bad. It is the worst news that you will ever hear. But then he shares the good news. And it's the best news you'll ever get. It is such good news on its own. But Paul shares the bad news first because you only realize how truly good this good news is when you see it in light of the bad news. And just as the word but made all the difference for my boys when I told them about my job change, it does the same here for those who listen to what Paul has to say in his letter. It takes a situation that is full of fear and despair, even death, but it offers courage, hope, new life. 
The bad news is bad. In fact, it's worse than you could possibly imagine. But God makes all the difference. Let's look at Ephesians 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of work so that no one may boast, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I thank you so much that your mercies are new for us every morning. And that your steadfast love, it never ends. Great is your faithfulness, God. I pray that you would give us eyes to see that you are faithful all over this passage. And so I pray, Lord, that you would uh, speak to us now. Thank you for your Holy Spirit, Lord. We pray that we would be sensitive to what you have to say. And that we'd be willing to follow you and change how you are asking us to. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, Paul writes this letter from his prison cell in Rome to the Christian believers in the city of Ephesus. And this passage, it contains three parts. Verses 1 to 3 are the bad news or the before picture of what the Ephesians' lives were like before becoming Christians. The second part in verses 4 to 7, they're the after photo, the good news describing of what their new life in Christ now entails. And then the third part in verses 8 to 10 describe how the Ephesians came to receive this new life in Christ and the implications that this should have on them. But why does Paul write this to them anyways? Why do they or any believers need a reminder of what their lives were like before Jesus and what they now have in Christ? I think it's because when we contrast the two, we get a clearer picture of just how bad things are without Jesus and how truly amazing things are in him. And that helps us to reaffirm our commitment to Christ as well as to steer clear of ever going back to our old lives living without him. It should also cultivate within us gratitude for the incredible things that God has done for us. Paul begins with the bad news, the picture of life without Christ and he says, and you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Dead. Dead is as bad as it gets. Dead is the point of no return. Once you're dead, you can't live differently. You can't reverse the effects of death. 
Death is final. But the death that Paul is talking about here, it's different than just simply physical death. The death he is speaking about is being morally and spiritually dead. It's dead in our relationship to God, who is the source of all life. It eventually does lead to our physical death, but in the meantime, Paul says that without Christ, you and I are the walking dead. He says that two things have caused this death, the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, the word walked is a metaphor for a way of life. It's not just our activities, but it includes our beliefs and our relationships as well. Paul says that this way of life without Christ is characterized by trespasses and sins. Now, often we can use these two words to mean the same thing, but they are slightly different. Sin means to miss the mark. Like when I try to be patient, but instead get frustrated and angry with others, well, then I've sinned. Trespassing or transgressing, it means to cross a line, to step over a clear boundary. So an example of a trespass in the Bible would be breaking one of the Ten Commandments. Clear boundaries that God made so that it would go well with us. But if I worshipped at the altar of a Buddha, for instance, I would be trespassing and transgressing the first two commands, worshipping another god and worshipping an idol. Paul then says that this sinful, trespassing, walking dead way of life came about because of who we used to follow. And one of the leaders we followed was the world. Commentator Daryl Johnson says that the word for world here is cosmos. And in the New Testament, cosmos does not refer to the physical universe. Rather, cosmos refers to the world rejecting the presence and lordship of God. Cosmos refers to human society organizing itself without God. We took our cues on how to live from human society organizing itself without God. Letting our sense of identity and worth our understanding of communities and cities and how nations should be shaped, our understanding of sexuality and marriage and family, all be formed by human society organizing itself without God. Paul is saying that the reason that we are dead in our transgressions and sins is because our values were set by a godless way of life and shaped by a godless vision of reality. In his paraphrase of this passage, Eugene Peterson says in the message that we let the world, which doesn't know the first thing about living, tell us how to live. But the world wasn't the only leader that we followed down death row. Paul says, you once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Do you see what he's saying here? The world itself isn't just organizing itself without God, doing it on its own. The world doesn't have as much independence and as much autonomy as it thinks it does. It too is following someone whom Paul calls the prince of the power of the air. 
Now, I mentioned in my first two sermons in Ephesians that Paul wants his audience to see that there is more going on than meets the eye. And Ephesians gives us an alternate reading of reality that is shaped by the gospel. And the spiritual dimension that the Bible describes is a realm that is beyond our world, which is most of the time beyond the reach of our human senses. And yet this other dimension, it interacts with our earthy space-time realm. But Paul speaks about rulers and authorities and dominions in chapter 1. And these represent both human and spiritual powers that are actively at work against human flourishing and are in opposition to God's goodwill. The prince, or the ruler of the power of the air, seems to be Paul's way of referring to Satan, the devil, who is actively instigating disobedience in people who are following in the ways of the world. Paul refers to those who walk in this ways as sons of disobedience. Now, this could be just ways, Paul's way of just describing non-believers. But you might recall from chapter 1, verse 5, Paul refers to Christians as sons of God through Christ. And there, Paul uses the term sons rather than children or sons and daughters to indicate our status as adopted firstborns who receive an inheritance in the Heavenly Father's rich estate. So perhaps here, by calling non-believers sons of disobedience, it means more than just who's your daddy. Perhaps calling those who walk in the ways of the world sons of disobedience, Paul is contrasting the radically different inheritance between believers and non-believers. Chapter 1 describes the inheritance of God's children as receiving the hope of eternal life and being part of the family of God. But here in chapter 2, Paul says that the sons of disobedience inherit death and God's wrath or his anger. But by describing non-believers in these ways, Paul's not propping himself up as being morally superior. And he's not saying, you know, it was just you Ephesians who used to live in this way. In verse 3, Paul includes himself as one who used to walk in the rank and file of the living dead. He says, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. See, before following Jesus, Paul was a zealous Jewish leader. He diligently studied God's word, and he strictly followed the Torah, God's law. And yet Paul says that even dedicated religious people like him were dead in sin. It's not just Jews, like the, like the Gentile Ephesians, who were the sons of disobedience. It's Paul too. In fact, it's everyone, he says. It's the rest of mankind. In verse 3, he says, We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. Now, this term flesh isn't just talking about our skin or our bodies. Not only is there nothing wrong with having a body, but God created the entire material world and he called it good. And then he honored, gave great honor to the human body when he sent his son Jesus to earth 
and Christ became embodied, God with flesh on. But Daryl Johnson says this term flesh, most of the time in the Bible, it refers to human nature as it is apart from the living God. Flesh is human nature turned away from the creator and then turned in on itself. It is humanity with the self at the center. In his letter to the Galatian church, Paul describes the behaviors that come naturally to humanity with self at the center. He says the acts of the flesh are obvious. Sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, and envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. He says, I warn you as I did before that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. Finally, at the end of this first part, which is describing the bad news, Paul says, we were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Wrath. Now there is a religious trigger word if I've ever heard one. I think when most of us hear this word wrath, we think about an angry outburst, like some kind of out of control rage. But this couldn't be further from the truth when it comes to describing God and his anger. God's wrath is controlled. It is his relentless righteous reaction to all that is not righteous. Theologian Leon Morris, he describes God's wrath as a strong and settled opposition to all that is arising out of God's very nature. That is good news, that God has a strong and settled opposition to all that is evil. It's arising out of his very nature. Perhaps that's hard for you and I to imagine a scenario where anger isn't out of control and violent. But perhaps that's because so much of our culture thrives off of being outraged with others that don't measure up. But God's anger is an expression of his love and his deep care for people. Third century theologian Lactanatius wrote that He who does not get angry does not care. If God can look at sin and injustice in this world and not get angry, he's not much of a God. The God of the Bible is not some unmovable, unfeeling force, but a God who cares. Now, I know the awful picture of the world and humanity that these first three verses paint. I also understand how some Christians are rightly uncomfortable when other Christians refuse to see any good or any beauty in the world or other people. But Paul is not saying in these verses that there isn't anything of worth in the world. Commentator Klein Snodgrass explains, he says, this text speaks of the universality of sin, but it does not reject the value of humanity. It points to pervasive depravity or corruption, a depravity that extends to all human thought and action, but it does not suggest total depravity in the sense of absolute worthlessness. All humans, 
whether believers or not, are created in the image of God, and they have enormous value and capacity. Despite depravity, God finds something worth loving. Each one of us in here has been made in the image of God and has incredible value. Each human out there has been made in the image of God and has incredible value and worth to him, and God finds something worth loving. And that's what the next four verses are all about. They're all about God's love. But before we move on to that good news and appreciate how good it really is, we need to see and actually believe how awful life without Christ is. The way that Paul describes humanity is how our society and culture functions today. Most people follow the way of the world. They just go with the flow. They believe what's popular or as the majority rules. We advocate for, your, for living your truth as long as that truth is politically correct. It reminds me of a description of society found at the end of the book of Judges. It says, everyone did what was right in his own sight. If you've ever read the book of Judges, you soon realize it's a description of a society that is out of control. Israel no longer consulted God about what the, way, the right way to walk was. They decided how to live for themselves, and the things they had formerly taken for granted as being morally right, they began to call wrong. Behavior and beliefs they would have never condoned in the past they began to celebrate. And this isn't just the world. Today in Canada, many churches, even pastors, who once took for granted certain things as being morally right, like marriage being exclusively between one man and one woman, they now call that wrong. Or behaviors and beliefs that they would have never condoned in the past such as medically assisted assistance in dying. They now celebrate. We have missed the mark. We have crossed over clear boundaries. And as a result, Paul says, we are walking in death. We face God's anger. Now, I understand how Sermons like these so far, they're not fun to listen to. Trust me, they're even less fun to deliver. We don't want to think things are that bad. We want to think that we and other people are basically good. We find it uncomfortable to say that the other way that people are living is wrong and we're afraid of painting too bleak a picture. But things are bad. The Bible says people are spiritually and morally dead and they are heading towards an eternal fate that's worse than they could possibly imagine. And friends, I know how preachers in the past have abused passages like these to fear monger and heaven forbid I ever do that. But if I gloss over what Paul is saying here, if I don't say just how bad this bad news is that he is describing, then I'm not only being unfaithful to Paul and Scripture and God, but I'm being unfaithful to you. And softening the blow by not speaking the truth helps no one. But it also makes the good news less good than it really is. The bad news is terrible. But God makes all the difference. In verse 4, but God, 
being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together in Christ. Amen. Yeah. But God are two of the most amazing words that any of us will ever hear. They proclaim the saving message of the gospel in six little letters. I have heard these life-changing words in the testimonies of many who were once dead in their sins but are now alive in Christ. They said, I was addicted to pornography or alcohol, but God. My marriage was dead, but God. I had an existential crisis. I had no hope. I had no reason to live, but God, but God, but God made all the difference. And here in Ephesians 2, 4 is the greatest but God you'll ever hear. We were dead in our sins, but God made us alive in Christ. Actually, it's a little more detailed than that. He says, but God being rich in mercy. The word mercy there can be defined as God not giving us what we deserve in terms of the punishment for our sin. And certainly that's a part of it. But the Greek term here is, uh, where is that? It's the term elos, which is sometimes used for the Hebrew word chesed, which you may recall me using a few times in our sermon series on the book of Ruth. And chesed means kind and loyal, reliable and compassionate. And this is the kind of mercy that God is rich in and that he has for us. Not only does he not give us what our sins deserve, but God has an abundance of chesed for us. He has riches of kindness. He is loyal and reliable and compassionate. God's mercy is characterized by selfless, sacrificial, and active caring. His mercy, it's not driven by duty or obligation but by selflessness that motivates God to do voluntarily for us what no one had a right to ever expect or ask of God. Paul continues, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our transgressions. I love how the ESV version puts this. Normally I preach from the NIV, and that version and others say, because of his great love for us, which could make you think that something we did or we have some sort of redeeming quality that makes God love us. But the way the ESV puts it here, because of the great love with which he loved us, it indicates that God already had this love. It's not a result of anything we did. Rather, it's love that originates in him, that he has decided that he is going to love us with it. In 1 John 4, the Apostle, Paul, the Apostle John describes God saying, God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. You know, it's very easy for us to get hung up on words like wrath or anger in passages like this and to focus on God's anger. And this has caused some people to mischaracterize God. But you know, any anger or wrath from God that we might experience, it's all instigated by us. But anytime we're tempted to think of God as less caring than he actually is, we should come back to these verses here. 
Because all the mercy and grace and love that Paul describes here, it's all God's initiative. We didn't earn it. We don't deserve it. God acts in mercy because he is, he is that kind of God. It says that he loved us while we were dead in our trespasses. He loved, uh, he loved us even while we were still rebelling against him. Romans 5, 8. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Paul continues here. But God made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Jesus. There's a lot going on in these verses here. Paul tells us three things that God has done for us. He has made us alive with Christ, raised us up with Christ, seated us with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I've said at the beginning of this series how this phrase, in Christ, is an important one for Paul in this letter. It is essential for him for this alternate reading of reality that is shaped by the gospel. And he wants this to be central for us as well. Because it's this alternative view of reality that gives Paul such a hopeless picture of life without Jesus, but also it's this alternative reality that enables Paul to understand how gloriously good we have it in Christ. Paul believes that if you put your hope in Christ, then not only is he alive in you here on earth, but that you are alive with him in the heavenly realms because Jesus is alive there. And what's true of Jesus is true for the people who belong to him. So let's look at these three things that God has done for us. First, Paul says, we are made alive with Christ. This goes back to the moral and spiritual death Paul says that we all experience as a result of walking in sin and in the ways of the world in rebellion against God. See, Jesus never experienced this moral or spiritual death because he never sinned and he never walked in the ways of the world. Jesus always walked according to the will of his Father. But Jesus did experience physical death, being crucified on the Roman cross to pay the penalty for our sins so that we could be forgiven. But the great news of the gospel says that Jesus defeated death, that by the power of God, he was resurrected, and after appearing to his followers, he ascended to heaven where he is now enthroned until he comes back to earth again and restores all things. And because what is true of Jesus is true of those who belong to him, Paul believes that we too have experienced a resurrection, not a physical one, at least not yet, that's still to come. But if you have put your hope in Jesus as your Savior, then you have experienced a moral and spiritual resurrection, going from death to life in Christ. Next, Paul says that we have been raised up with Christ and seated with Christ in the heavenly places in Christ. Now, I'm not sure what all the implications of this are. Certainly for Paul, who is in prison, it does mean that his chains and his prison bars are not his only reality. He is also in the heavenly places 
in Christ. And so that gives Paul hope and a greater sense of joy and freedom than one would expect from a prisoner. And so that means the difficult situations that we may be facing in our lives aren't all there is either. We might be experiencing trouble here and now, but because we also have been raised up with Christ, we too can have hope and peace that are not dependent on our earthly circumstances. In Ephesians 1, 20 to 21, it says that God raised Christ from the dead, seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every name that is invoked, not only in the present age, but also in the one to come. And if this is true for Christ, then this is also true of his people. It means that we've also, we are also above these rules and authority, powers and dominions, because we are in Christ. We have been raised and seated with him. This means that even though you and I may feel the impact of earthly and spiritual powers that are aligned against God and his people, we don't have to fear them. The powers are not in control. Christ is. His victory over them, it's total. And Jesus is the only one who is in control. And you and I, we are safe and secure in him. Then in verse 7, Paul finishes describing the afterphoto, the good news of life in Christ, saying, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying to us, there's more to come. The mercy and love that God has given to us in the present, it's incredible. But this isn't it. There's more. There is so much more than you could measure. There's so much, it's immeasurable how much grace and kindness that God will show us. Paul says in chapter 1, he talks about this coming age he refers to here, and he refers to it there as the hope to which he has called you. That age in the future that God's people have always looked forward to when God would restore his reign on earth, bringing his justice and healing and putting an end to all that is evil and wrong in this world. And so we anticipate the age to come when Jesus returns. But I love how Paul says it in this verse, he describes it as if God is looking forward to that age too. He can't wait to show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ. The good news just keeps getting better, but God makes all the difference. Finally, verses 8 to 10, they describe how Christians came to receive their new life in Christ and the implications that this should have on us. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing. It is the gift of God, not the result of work so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. By grace you have been saved. I remember a teacher once explaining to a class the difference between mercy and grace, and he used an example of being pulled over by the police for speeding. It's never happened to me. He says, justice would be receiving the speeding ticket. 
having to pay the fine, the punishment that is prescribed for breaking the law. Mercy, though, would be the police officer just giving a warning, not giving you the ticket that you deserve. But grace, like the grace that God gives in the gospel, would be like the officer giving you the ticket, but pulling out his own wallet and paying the ticket himself, but then also handing over to you his credit card and some cash. Grace is the most priceless thing you'll ever receive. But God's grace, it's more than just mere enrichment. It gives life to the dead. It's God's free, undeserved gift. Paul says this gift, it's not the result of our own doing or the result of works so that no one could boast. Of course it's not. We are dead. There's nothing a dead person can do, let alone save themselves. It is the gift of God. And this gift, he says, is received through faith. It comes to us when we put our trust in Jesus, believing that his death paid for our sins and granted us forgiveness. Faith also means repenting. It means turning from going my own way, following the way of the world, turning and following him and going the way of God putting my trust in what he's calling me to do and how to live. Building my life on Jesus. It means that even if I don't understand God's ways, even when his ways don't line up with what's politically correct, that I will still trust him. That I will trust his ways are not only best for me, but they are also what is best for this world because God so loved the world that he sent his son into the world to save the world all through his gift of grace. If you've never experienced this gift before, I would implore you to receive it today. Put your hope in Jesus. Christ saves us from death and the anger that we deserve for rebelling against God, and he saves us to new life in him, a life that is characterized by rich mercy, by great love, by immeasurable grace, and by his kindness. But perhaps you've heard about this gift before, but you've not received it because there is something in your life, something in your past, or maybe something in your life right now that prevents you from being welcomed by God, you think. But Paul says, listen, it's not about what we've done, good or bad, but it's all about what he has done for us. We've all sinned. We have all crossed lines. Heaven knows we have done things that we shouldn't have. But God makes all the difference. Put your hope in him today. In verse 10, Paul finishes, for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Workmanship is another way of saying that we are new creations. We are created by God to live in a new way, not in the way that we used to walk in, not in sin or following the world, but we are created to walk in good works. And the good works, they're not our good works. Paul says that they are God's works, which he is already doing, 
but that you and I, we are invited to join God in them. So we are working with God in this world as his partner people. So what are these good works then that God has created for us that we should walk in? I think that if we take a look back at this passage and we see all of the good ways that God has worked in our lives, it begins to paint a picture of how we're to walk in this world. So it must include showing mercy and love, kindness and grace to others who aren't deserving. Just as we have been given these things as gifts from God and we didn't deserve them either. So reconciling relationships is one of the good works God is calling you and I to walk in, to forgive others, to apologize, to mend our relationships. Walking in this good works, these good works also means saying no to walking in the ways of the world, saying no to sin and trespassing God's good boundaries. And in order for us to do that, it means we need to understand the will of God. Back in chapter 1, Paul prays for the Ephesians that they would know the wisdom and revelation of God. And one of the ways that we receive this is by studying and understanding the Scripture and believing that it is both true and right. And then to start living according to it, to start living out the commands, the command to love our neighbor, living out the Sermon on the Mount, living out what Paul's instructions to the church are in all of his letters. And then finally, we cannot forget that we were created in Christ Jesus for these good works. So this means we need to prioritize growing in our relationship with Jesus. I wonder if any of you recall that in my first sermon, I said that I would likely give this as an application for every message I preached in this series. And so far, I'm three for three. See, living or abiding in Jesus, it means that we are growing in our relationship with him, that we're spending time with Christ, that we are talking with him. It means that we are making Jesus the very center of our lives and trusting him with our decisions and also what we believe. And being in Christ, it also must mean worshiping him for all that he has done for us because we were dead in sin. We were children of wrath. But God, but thanks be to God, he makes all the difference. Would you stand with me and pray and invite the worship team to come on up? Oh, gracious Father, what can we say except for thank you and that we love you? We don't deserve any of the goodness that you have poured down on us. But you are more kind and merciful than we could ever imagine. I pray, Lord, for each one of us that we would put our hope and our trust in you alone. I pray for anyone here today who, if this is their first time, God, I pray that, that they would put their hope in you and that you would fill them with your spirit and that they would share with somebody else that they are going to put their hope in Jesus and follow him today. And I pray that each one of us would be resolved to do that. Thank you for how you have saved us. Thank you that we no longer have to fear death, but you have given us the hope of new and eternal life with you. 
I pray that you would fill us with gratitude this morning, that we would go from here worshiping the God who saved us, who makes all the difference, and that we would be salt and light into our neighborhoods and the homes in which we live. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.